Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable business development success. Go to leftfoot.com for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest leads his company's legal, compliance, regulatory affairs, and government relations efforts, which have been significant. He brings a variety of experience to his current role, having served as a senior associate at Quinn Emanuel, an assistant U.S. attorney, a federal judicial court clerk, and an intelligence officer for the U.S. Army, a four-year period which included leadership with a U.S. Army company deployed to Bosnia. The general counsel and VP of External Affairs at Zenefits, Josh Stein, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Josh. Let's dive into our questions. Which of your personal habits have allowed you to be successful transitioning to a role as in-house counsel? Uh, Luck. Like Napoleon's generals, the best quality to have is to be lucky. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It's a little bit of an interesting story. I was at Quinn Emanuel, a senior associate doing mostly white collar work, working for John Potter, who I learned a lot from, is just an outstanding practitioner in his field but was was looking to go in-house. And right at that time was when Blackwater, the security company, hit the press. This would have been late 2007 into early 2008. And just from my experience in the military and the time doing some gun cases and some other prosecutions, the U.S. Attorney's Office, as well as the defense work with Quinn, I just saw an opportunity to go in-house with a company that could really use my skill set. So I shot them a resume cold. They very graciously reached out and I started working there shortly thereafter. So what was the most surprising thing about the transition? Let's start there and then we'll talk about your experience and and really walking into the Zenefits environment. Sure. I think two things. One is is the pace. You feel overwhelmed with work when you're in-house at a law firm and that's because you are. But they come in big chunks. You have long periods of time compared to in-house. A long period of time is an hour to concentrate on something. I never get an hour uninterrupted. And so you deal with fewer, bigger matters that you can do things like thinking and planning and strategizing. In-house, the pace is relentless and your focus and time is much more fragmented. And that's a big change. The other big change is one of the reasons people go in-house, which is you only have one client. And then you realize there's two sides to that coin. The best part about being in-house is you only have one client. And the hardest part about being in-house is you only have one client. We do hear a lot about the pace and that the, you, know, you have to respond at the speed that business requires, right? It has to be, you have a business decision that needs to be made and the legal decision, unless of course it's, you know, there's a significant risk, can't really hold up the pace of that decision, let's say it that way. When you're working with outside counsel, has that been a challenge or is it something that you communicate right up front that you know your organization needs to move at the pace of business, the pace of the business you're in? Is that part of that introduction to those outside counsel? 
It is. And there's two different ways to address that. And it's both sort of how outside counsel works and it comes into the selection of outside counsel. So one of the best ways to get the responsiveness you need is to select the right outside counsel at the time. And that's people with the expertise because a lot of the times it's picking up the phone, it's a quick email and it's, hey, I need a quick read on this. Let me give you a 30 second thumbnail sketch of the facts which I know is not nearly going to satisfy you. And I need an answer at the end of that 30 seconds. And you need someone with just a really deep expertise in that area, whether it's ERISA law, whether it's insurance law, whether it's CMS regulations, whether it's Arms Export Control Act, or whether it's in a kickback statute in Stark on physician arrangements, whatever it is, you need someone who can instantly say, there's all the usual caveats and you have a relationship where they need to say it, where you can't, you're not going to take this opinion to the bank, but they can say, hey, directionally, that sounds right. Here are the issues to look out for. Here are the additional facts that you need or don't need. And here are going to be the levers, either from a regulatory permission standpoint or from an economic standpoint and how they're going to interact. They need to be able to orient you as a general counsel or in-house counsel right away. So you can go in and have intelligent discussion and figure out what you need to know. And I think when you think about dealing with in-house counsel, we're general practitioners. Outside counsel is a cardiothoracic surgeon or a radiologist. And so we're responsible for the patient. We're responsible for frontline care and for coordinating the care of a whole bunch of experts. But we need that orientation and we need those quick answers because we're dealing with the patient that demands that sort of attention. Absolutely. And I think that's a great analogy to make. As you entered the Zenefits world, as you said, okay, this is a direction I want to take my career. Here's a company, there's a need. And you really approach them. You know, what about your style do you think really helped you in that process? I did my homework. I spent about 45 or 50 hours preparing for the interview. It was luck and then it was some hard work, but there's a lot of bright, hardworking people out there. I was lucky in the sense of I had a friend of a friend who knew about the opening and knew that my background was a good fit. I'd been at United Health Group. I was a GC for one of their subsidiaries for five years. And then the time is an AUSA and some of the other time all kind of came together for a company that was facing significant and complex regulatory issues. So that was all good. And then I got lucky that I knew somebody who could get my resume in front. But I spent 45, 50 hours. I read everything that had ever been written. I researched the founder and all the top execs. I knew what I was talking about coming in. And I think I know one of the topics you want to get to later is business development. But I expect not 50 hours worth, but I expect some deep preparation and homework on outside counsel when they come to talk to me about the company, about me and the execs, and most importantly, about what they can tell about our legal issues and our economic model from what they've been able to research. What they've been able to research, what they understand about your particular business segment. I mean, those are all things that we talk to lawyers about. We say, hey, you know, focus on an industry because then you're able to take that information to others. So not only are you a lawyer and not only are you an IP lawyer, but you're also an IP lawyer that works in outsourcing or in a particular space. I mean, those are all, of course, then it makes it easier to get the next client in that space, of course, too, right? Because you've got that background. So great points and, you know, really is a great lead into the next question. So when you're talking to outside counsel or technology companies or legal services companies to partner with you and your team at Zenefits, besides the research, you know, what are the things that you look for in those partners? Sure. The table stakes is having the expertise and the analytical abilities. But there are a lot of bright, hardworking people out there that gets you in the round of people to be considered, but it doesn't win you the business. And I I really want to repeat that point about doing your homework. I can't tell you how many times I come in 
And a lot of information about our legal issues and how that interplays with our company is out in the press or is readily available from filings and people haven't read them and they don't understand them. I think the second is come in and have a plan. You've done your homework, come in and say, this is what I know. This is my diagnosis. This is how I'd approach it. Here are the other things I want to know. And here are the alternatives. If the facts are different than I think, or your business is different than I think, here's how I'd approach it differently. The point is not to come in with the right answers. The point is to come in with an analysis that shows me how you think about things, how you analyze things, and for me to evaluate your ability to take on the matter. I don't need the right answers in that pitch meeting. What I need is an ability to have insight into your thinking, and I can't have insight into your thinking if you haven't done your homework and come in with a plan and a really thought out analysis and recommendations. That is a great point. And Josh, we heard that from Alan Bryan at Walmart. He said, you know, hey, I want to know what the potential outcomes are to my business issue. And I want you to spell out at least the first few steps. And I do understand that you don't know everything, right? You're proposing something to our firms. I have to say, I don't think that resonates for a lot of folks that are out doing business development for law firms. That is important. Give us an understanding. We know it's not going to be right. You don't have all the information. It really does. Just say, here's what I know. This is your economic lever. I think that you have these facts in the background. This is what I surmise to be true. That leads me to these conclusions. If these things change, this is the direction you go. It's really understanding the levers or major considerations and how they interact with each other. As the economic exposure increases in a False Claims Act case, then I would approach it differently. Or I think you have more of a reputational risk issue here and less of a true legal liability issue. Here's how I'd structure the litigation to manage more of that reputational risk and take on a little more legal risk in order to manage what I think is your bigger issue. Nicole here and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to refresh your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will refresh your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to leftfoot.com. When we talk to our lawyers and we talk about business development and we talk about how do you approach a client, many lawyers are risk averse. That's why they became lawyers. We talk about business development You know, when we talk about, hey, go in with facts that that you don't know. And they're like, why would I do that? There's a whole mindset around that. And again, around risk. And it goes back to the need a quick response. Our business is moving fast. You need to work at our pace. Again, there's potential risk. In working with outside counsel, can you talk about either a tactical best practice that the outside counsel that you want to work with, the things that they bring with them? Sure. And I think philosophically, it's you're right. It's a question of who gets attracted into it, but it's also how folks get trained and rewarded, which is that as lawyers, we are very academic and academic analytical skills are extraordinarily important. But we think that As outside lawyers, we think that getting the right answer, getting the most correct answer is the best answer. But inside a business, the question is less, what's the most academically correct answer? The question is, what's a decent enough answer that we can logistically actually implement, that we can execute on well? 
Back in the army, we had a saying that a bad plan executed with violence and precision will beat the best plan executed poorly any day of the week. And that same concept applies to a business. You need something that you can logistically execute on, that you can rally people behind, that you can get resources assigned to, and that you can deploy effectively. And so the very best academic answer that isn't understandable or can't draw support or that becomes very complicated logistically to do is, in fact, not a good answer at all. And some of it just comes from a different perspective. Outside counsel is trying to answer a legal question. They're trying to give the academically best answer. As in-house counsel, in a lot of ways, we're a business person solving business problems, but through a legal lens. Just like the CFO isn't an accountant just counting beans, a CFO is at heart a business executive solving business problems holistically, but from a financial lens. It's the same thing for a GC. It's the same thing for in-house counsel. You know, that's a terrific comparison. And we talk about, you know, CFOs also are looking at the data they have, obviously the numbers specifically, and looking for opportunities, looking for business opportunities, looking for things that they should be looking out for in their business based on those numbers. Obviously, as a general counsel, you're doing that from legal risk perspective as well. Well, also they say those that we're doing it from a legal opportunities perspective. And I think that especially comes to the fore in business development deals, M&A deals, and in highly regulated industries. And I'll give a good example, which is when I was at United Health Group, one of the main sources of revenue was our Medicare unit. Not only is it highly regulated, the regulations themselves create the product, they create the market. And so your client is not just those individual seniors signing up for Medicare benefits through your insurance company. It's CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They are a client, but they're a client that can only make their wishes known through regulation. And so spotting business opportunities, spotting opportunities for effective pricing, for effective marketing, for positioning of the product, for development of product features, for how you interact with vendors, because it's so highly regulated and complexly regulated, lawyers have a real opportunity to show value by helping to drive business decisions. And that's one what attracts me to working at companies in highly regulated industries is you really become central to the value prop. I think it's a great point. And having that background, because very few lawyers have in-depth knowledge of CMS and really what it's going to take to actually implement a CMS plan. Now we go back to being a lawyer, having experience in that industry, in that specific industry, and then being able to apply it to a business. Today, you have members and HR professionals you work with that don't even know what CMS is. Very interesting to bring that all into play. One of the reasons, Josh, that you and I are on the phone is when I saw an article that you were featured in and you know, I thought about the Zenefits business and I thought about kind of what you provide to your clients from an outsource perspective through technology, customer service and ease of use. It was my expectation that you would expect that from your partners. You would expect that from your legal services partners. You would expect that from your law firm partners, from the technology vendors you use within your area. Can you talk about those partners or one of those partners where they did a really good job in earning your business and really supporting you within Zenefits? I'd break it up into two things. One is earning the business, pitching it in the beginning. And then frankly, the more important and the harder task is retaining the business. It is easier, I think, than folks think to get that first bite at the apple. It's a lot harder to keep the business because it's like any relationship, the irritations and the frustrations and the glass half full accumulates over time. Going back to gaining the business, we're talking about in terms of doing your homework, having a plan, a real curiosity and openness about the business. So at the same time, you're putting forward an affirmative vision. You're also acknowledging what you don't know 
and you're asking a ton of questions. And by asking a student size of questions, you've already shown that you've done your homework and you're showing me that you value my business and you value what we're trying to do. And just, I think also going out on a limb. So I have dealt with law firms that have done some really innovative pitches. They show they knew me in the business. They show that they knew the litigation matter that they just seen the complaint filed against the company on. And then they came in and said, we'll get it knocked out. We think we can get it knocked out on a summary judgment motion. And if we don't, you don't pay the fees up until that point. That got my attention. That was somebody willing to go out on a limb and willing to take on a lot of risk. And they were clearly willing to make that investment because they were trying to establish a relationship with us as a company. That's a very impressive pitch. We're hearing that more and more. And and that shows the value. A, that shows they want your business. B, that you know they're willing to invest to your point. You know, I kind of put that on the service level agreement side, something that is common, I would imagine, in your business. It was when I worked in a similar space where the clients wanted you to be at risk. And many clients say, okay, and then we're happy to pay even an increased reward after that. So, And you are willing? Is that something you do pay success fees? I think part of what's tough is lawyers are so invested in the billable hour and they have efficiency ratings, actualization, realization rates. But what they don't understand is inside a company, we live and die on budgets and forecasting. And as a GC, that budget number, I hit that budget number, I live and die on that budget number. And so when someone comes to me and says, yeah, we want to take on the litigation, I think it's going to cost X, Y, or Z. It's always multiples of that. And it's definitely higher multiples of that when they're not willing to stand behind it, which is almost always. And I get why that's hard for outside counsel because scope always increases, client demands a million rewrites, things, it's tougher once you get underneath the hood. And so you can stage budgets and then revisit them as circumstances change. But I can't go to finance and say, well, maybe it'll cost a half million. Maybe it'll cost a million. Maybe it'll cost 5 million. I don't know. I've been given a number by my CFO and I live and die on that number. And if I don't, then the next GC will come and live and die on that number. So let's chat about that for a minute because we have heard law firms talk about this and definitely the general counsel. We've interviewed a, a fair share And in the tech space and in more mature companies like MetLife, and I just interviewed an associate general counsel at PepsiCo, you know, as we talk about this, the billable hour, as we talk about having more alternative fee arrangements, one of the things that has been coming up more frequently is, yeah, I'm willing to do an alternative fee arrangement if you're on the law firm side. And on the client side, they're saying, yeah, let's do an alternative fee arrangement, even when it's litigation. Because we're going to have conversations. We're going to have communication. Things are going to come up, but let's at least come up with what we think this will take financially so that you can budget to your point. And then just in case this litigation changes, I'm going to reserve these funds. Is that how you would approach it to get litigation on a more fixed fee arrangement? If I was outside counsel, I would stage it and I would commit to a number by the first stage and then say, these are tentative projections for the later stages that I will then commit to by a new stage. So it'll cost you hundred grand to get through motion to dismiss, including any hearings. And then from there through discovery and summary judgment, my guess would be X, but we'll revisit it at the time at which the motion to dismiss is decided. That's very fair. That protects risk on their side and on my side. But I don't have buckets of money that I set aside. I have an overall budget that I'm given. And so I have to rob Peter to pay Paul. If outside counsel busts the budget on a motion to dismiss, then maybe I can't use outside counsel for developing a new highly regulated product. I got to find somewhere else to pull it. Or I have to go back to finance and ask for special dispensation, which is a lot easier to do when I can say, hey, I've hit my budgets before. The scope changed. 
And so now we need to readjust the forecast going forward. You can reforecast based off changed circumstances. And that happens all the time in the business world. But when you give an estimate, you live and die on it. And I think outside counsel kind of throws numbers around. I can't imagine it'll be more than a million or eh, it'll be a million. You tell me it's a million, then that means it's a million because that's the number I give into finance and that's what I'm being held to account to. And I think that communication right there is huge. The law firms are starting to say, hey, let's be better business people. Let's put an operations, you know, a COO type hat on and we go in to talk to clients. They really want to know what is this going to cost? And again, if something does change, to your point, if there is a material change, you know, that's part of the communication. And the clients want to know right away. They want to know when it comes up. They want to know what the plan is and how we're going to approach it. You've been on both sides, right? So why not communicate? Where are the challenges there? Does it go back to the risk question? Or is there something inherent about attorneys that they don't want to communicate change? Just a couple of things. So in fairness to outside counsel, you don't know what the facts are. You don't know what you're getting into. It's very difficult to estimate. And anyone who's had a general contractor come out and work on their house knows that those numbers can change. But a general contractor, they don't change those numbers unless they can demonstrate to you that the scope has changed or there's something that simply wasn't contemplated. And I really think doing a litigation, doing it by stages, transactions, being careful with the scope is the way to do it. And just realize you're investing in relationship. If it's truly bet the company litigation, if it's a one-off transaction and you don't anticipate a future relationship, then it may not make sense for outside counsel to really take on that risk. But otherwise, I think it does. And that's what we certainly need in-house in terms of how we budget and go forward. I think in terms of communication, I would love for law firms to start to hire people with a project management background who could, for example, once a week or every two weeks, send me a one-page dashboard that tells me what's happened in the last two weeks, what's coming up for upcoming dates, what the status of the efforts are, what's the spend to date so far, how are we against budget, how are we forecasting or accruing over the next quarter, how does that tie into the legal strategy and what we're doing. In other words, a one-page dashboard that I know at a glance what's going on, if I need to brief up my CEO or my business partner or talk to my team about, it's all right there. That is something that I think if you haven't been in business and seen how those get effectively used, it's very difficult to envision and understand. It was something that I hadn't really encountered until I went in-house for the first time. But when you see dashboards, certain types of metrics, certain types of project management skills, and how effective those can be in orchestrating the effort of a lot of different parties, once you start living with them, you can't live without them. There's some light at the end of the tunnel with that because we have law firms working closely with tech companies, working closely with project management software organizations. And they're saying, we need data. We have tons of data. Can't we deliver this data back to our clients? Can't we talk to them about how we can improve our relationship and present the data? It doesn't have to be rocket science. After every meeting, send around an email with just a punch list of what the action items are, who owns them, and what the due dates are. That is an amazing organizational tool that's underutilized. I think one of the most effective management tools is having a regular huddle. You get everybody on the phone. If it's a crisis, it's every day. If it's a bunch of ongoing work, it's once a week. Even if it's just half an hour, you send agenda ahead of time. You walk through the punch list quickly and on a high level and you coordinate efforts. I always like to have everyone in the room, every associate that's working on the cases, every partner that's working on the cases, everyone in-house on my team that's on there. 
that's far more effective and frankly cost efficient to get everyone understanding what the priorities are, who's doing what and what the vision is to accomplish than for me to talk to relationship partner, to relay it to the junior partner, to relay it to the senior associate, to then talk to everybody. There's a big loss of quality and all that transmission. There's a real loss of efficiency and it's frankly is more expensive in the long run. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And I heard it again recently from one of my private equity clients. They're doing that. So that idea that in law firms, why wouldn't you give everyone all the information? You know, we talk about that actually in some of our coursework at Leftfoot is that if you're an associate, you should be doing a lot of research on the client and then offering it to the team. And if you're the partner, you should be making sure that associate gets all the information because you don't know who they're talking to when they're at the client and you want them to be able to ask questions and and effectively listen to what's going on. So absolutely agree with you that you know, there has to be a better or a different way of communicating to be able to position those resources to support you the best that they can. When the quarterback calls the play, the entire team is in on the huddle. Quarterback just doesn't talk to the wide receivers, going to catch the ball, and then it cascades down. Everyone's in the huddle. Partners should be insisting on that. They should be insisting on having their whole team on that huddle call, and they should be insisting on having one even if the client's resisting, because it will be far more effective and it will be far more efficient for everybody in the long run. And I think one of the biggest ways it becomes more efficient and what I really like about it is everyone feels like they're on the team. That associate's hearing from me, this is my priorities, this is what I want. Everybody's got 10 pounds in a five pound bag. Here's the five pounds that doesn't fit in. And they feel like they're valued. They feel like they're in on the strategy. They feel like they understand what's going on. And when associates aren't treated like mushrooms, I find they're far more effective. There you go. There you go. And then it also gives them a voice and they're more comfortable. They're spending more time talking about the client. Huge advantage. Thank you. That's a huge plus for our listeners. You've been in the legal environment here through a significant change that happened in the economy around the 2008 timeframe. You know, we've been talking about pricing. We've been talking about the market, the competition amongst large firms, the competition amongst tech vendors and legal services providers is all greater today than it was. And of course, there's a lot of change with tech and legal services coming in to that legal environment. In your opinion, what have been the positive changes around how you're able to evaluate services in the market? What has really changed for you that you would say that's made a significant difference in your decision-making today? AFAs, whatever that would be, you know, what has made the most significant change? It works really differently depending on the scale of the company. United Health Group, we did an RFP process. We had preferred vendors sorted out by different categories. So you had a go-to list that you knew had the expertise. And then you know within United, which had, I believe, well over a thousand lawyers, or at least over a thousand lawyers and compliance professionals, you would talk to your buddies and find out who was really good and who wasn't and which partner to go to and which one to avoid. When you're smaller scale, somebody like Zenefits, there's a lot more word of mouth and there's a lot more reliance on boutiques in part because boutiques tend to be a little bit cheaper. But more importantly is I need that direct connect to the partner who isn't spread too thin. My ideal staffing model for any matter is one partner, one associate. And when I hear about, oh, we're going to use associates and they're cheaper, I never find value in larger teams of associates. And frankly, I think associates are radically overpriced compared to their value. Whereas I think partners, frankly, the really good ones, undervalue their services. There are a number of partners I've hired at over $1,000 an hour where I would have willingly played twice that and gotten good value for the dollar. There are tons of associates and junior partners billing out at $500, $600, $800 an hour who frankly are barely worth half that. And it frankly disadvantages the larger 
law firms, I have a bias towards boutiques simply because I know I'm going to get that partner's time and attention and expertise, which is really what I want to buy. There you go. Thank you for that. And we are talking about this word value again. And I think, you know, as I talk to people in all sides of the industry, you know, we hear that we're saying, okay, I am willing to pay a certain number because I know that that person has the expertise, can quickly assess the situation. And when I say quickly, I mean appropriately assess the situation. And based on their experience, the value of their 20 minutes is so much higher than, to your point, the starts and the stops and the needing to check with someone else. When you're looking at these boutique firms, when you're looking and assessing a proposal from an organization that is looking to handle the matter, how do you assess that value? Fundamentally, I look for expertise and I look for the fact that I'm going to get those experts actively involved in my matters, not high level skimming across the waves. The relationship partner model, I think, is detrimental not only to the quality, but to the relationship. I don't need somebody who's an expert in talking to me. I need someone who's an expert in my legal matters. And I need someone who's fully involved who can talk with me on a granular detail about them. That's what I'm evaluating. Sometimes it's larger firms that win. And in certain contexts, you do a large M&A deal, you do a matter with a large amount of litigation that you actually need a lot of bodies to crank through at a high level as really complex and sensitive white collar case, for example, then larger firms are going to have a real advantage there. But in general, I think it's the smaller teams and I'm looking at the value based off those same characteristics when they're pitching me when they come through the door. I'm less concerned with what's the actual hourly rate because efficiency and outcome varies so much. What I'm I do pay attention to rates, but what I'm more interested in is talking about the creative budgeting. Are you going to actually have a budget and stick to it? Are you open to some sort of modified alternative fee arrangement that fairly spreads the risk and provides more certainty? Have you done your homework? Do you have a plan when you walk in? Are you curious and open to what's going on with my business and oriented around it? Those are the things I primarily judge by. The difference between paying 400 an hour and 600 an hour, for example, is actually relatively minor in the total cost of things compared to how efficiently is your team set up? How was the quality of the results that you're giving me? What's the certainty around budget and projections that you're giving me? So it's interesting. So as I hear that and I'm like, okay, that's terrific. That's the way I think most people would want to select. I think one thing to, to come back to Nicole is I think one of the toughest things for outside counsel to realize how it's different for in-house counsel. You know, I mentioned that the best thing and the worst thing of being in-house counsel is you have one client. So the great part is you're on a consistent team. You feel really invested in the team. There's a long-term development. You can see the value you add grow over time and be recognized. The downside is you got a single client. You lose that leak, that single client, you're out on the street. I think what sometimes outside counsel doesn't understand, whether it's hitting the number on a budget or it's being really accurate and consistent in how manage expectations and how you message what's going on, what the issues are and the appraisal of them. Because I see outside counsel be very conservative with the lawyers. And then if they're in front of the business folks, suddenly they even unconsciously start to shade things and give better news. That really puts outside counsel in a tough spot. So what I think outside counsel doesn't realize enough is that every time I pick outside counsel for a significant matter, I am handing them my career. I'm handing them my job. I'm handing them my ability to put food on the table for my family. And if they drop it, that's what they've dropped. And I think sometimes there's not really a realization that that's what's going on. So that's, you know, that's a really solid point. And you know, it's interesting. We have this 
feedback we get from a lot of the folks we're talking to in-house and even the biggest tech names. I mean, there's one major technology company. You would think that any firm working with them would overserve this client. You know, she talked about on air, our law firms drop the ball all the time. I'm at risk for that. I picked that firm. I agreed to work with them. A great point to make. You're handing them your career. It's a solid point. Thank you for sharing that because I think we really have to drive that message home. You know, you were asking before about what outside counsel can do to gain business and then to retain it. One of the key things I think about retaining is A, being open to coaching. A lot of folks have difficulty delivering bad news. I think that's something that we're good at here is that we provide coaching early and often, but folks have to be open to it. And some folks are, and some folks really bridle and get defensive. And that's just a bad dynamic because then the way you fix that is by finding a different outside counsel rather than improving the relationship and delivery. If someone's delivering criticisms because and going through the psychological discomfort of that, it's because they're actually trying to invest in the relationship. And I think it's hard as human beings to take that, but I think outside counsel really would be well served to just take that in. And the other is to realize that I am not interested in their internal management issues. I don't want to know that this associate dropped it or that partner here or that vendor there. A leader is responsible for everything his unit does or fails to do, period, full stop. That is a truism for the CEO, it's a truism for me as a GC, and it should be a truism for outside counsel. Something gets messed up, I don't want to know the internal dynamics of it. I want a, here's the root cause, not the root person, and here's how we're going to fix it next time. We're going to have another quality control step, or this was a one-off, we apologize, or here's how we're going to take care of it. Great response. And, and actually, I can see why you did well in the world of United Healthcare when you were there, because that is a big part of that process. It's not about who caused the problem. It's like, what's the problem? Let's fix it so it doesn't happen again and let's go forward. I applaud you for saying you give your law firms feedback and you start that process early. One of the things we talk about even in the business development side of the house is we really work with our law firms, our lawyers to talk about the fact that hearing no from a client, prospective client, hearing please change the way you're doing this from a client is such valuable information. And it's information that you can take action on. To your point, when you don't hear those things is more concerning. That's when you know you're probably not going to do well to hold on to that client or in the business development, pure new client side. We talk about our lawyers too nice to share that information or too respectful or too professional. Any insight into why you think it doesn't happen more often that these law firms are not getting this feedback? Well, it's tough to provide criticism directly to people. In fact, you can't even call it criticism anymore. It's always opportunities for improvement. It's hard. And I think if when people show that they're open to it and when they solicit it, when they say, hey, how'd we do? And the in-house counsel says, oh, you were great. And it's like, that's good to hear. I'm sure there are areas for improvement. What could we have improved? And dig on it because the glass is never 100% full. Nothing's ever perfect. Even showing that you're open to that, people will feel comfortable starting to provide it. Some of that's a personality thing. Some of it's just a culture of a firm or a culture of a company issue. But at least for where I've been and the companies I've been in, if all you ever hear is everything's perfect, that's the time to worry about the relationship. And when you're getting criticism, what it shows is we're invested enough in the relationship and in you to go through the psychological discomfort and take time out of the day to thoughtfully provide input. Great point. And that idea of dig on it and the big firm environment, chairman visits come up, right? And information's exchanged. First, you don't want it to come up there for the first time if it does come up. And B, sometimes when those things come up in those chairman's visits, 
people don't take action. So I think the action point is at the point that a matter is being worked on or concluded at the beginning. How can we do this differently? We want to make sure we're set up for success. You know, what are the expectations? You know, really having that conversation early on can make, make a significant difference. And again, I applaud you for making sure that you are delivering that that feedback and, and it becomes part of the process, right? It, it's regular. It's part of the process. Josh, you have been on both sides of the table. You've now been in-house to very different companies, different size firms. What advice, specific advice for professionals specifically, what advice would you give them specific to beginning their business development journey and then having success? Those early partners, those new partners, what should they be doing? Sure. First and foremost, they should be lucky. And second, they should be patient. Everybody gets lucky eventually if you're patient long enough. We're used to, especially being lawyers, we work hard, we take an exam, we get a good grade. There's this direct transmission between effort and reward in a very predictable and short time frame. And that's just not how business development works. You're planting seeds. Most of them will never sprout. Lots of them will sprout in unlikely places in long time frames. And so you just have to pace yourself, be patient, and just continue to do it and really focus on how you can help other people. And then it'll come around. And you know, this was something I think I didn't do. Frankly, I did not do effectively until just the last few years. Every time I meet somebody now, I just think, okay, who can I hook them up with? What can I do to help this person out and help the person I'm connecting them with out by connecting them together? And that, all those seeds, they, they'll come around later and you just do good work and people remember you. It is good to drop a note, not often, every six months, quick note, a quick email. Here's what's going on. How are you doing? Have a small group of people that you have a real connection with, grab a drink, grab lunch occasionally. You add all those up, it ends up being a lot of work. And I think you have to pace yourself. When I was young, I thought it was all about meeting someone and trying to figure out how they could help me. And I think as you get older, you realize it's, it's finding people that you meet naturally and figuring out how you can help them and then knowing it's going to come back around. But it's my opportunities have all come around from the most random, unlikely places for the most part. And from people who we were friends, we did good work together. And that was a year ago, five years ago. I've had relationships that are 15 years old that suddenly come to life again. You just got to be patient with it. And it's, it's tough when you're young because you're under a lot of pressure. Maybe you're a young mother or father. You've got your career and it always, it feels slow, but just be patient. And if you're patient, persistent, the luck will come. Great points. It's about luck and patience. Josh, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to add before we say goodbye? I'm going to tie in my last comment to the comment about providing coaching in the moment and being over to criticism. I spent a lot of our talk providing all the ways in which outside counsel could do better or they fall short. Or, But to be honest, there's a lot of really good attorneys out there. I've had folks deliver a lot of value. I really want to mention a couple by name. There's uh, Tom Welsh and his crew at Oric, who are insurance regulatory counsel, have done fantastic work. There's Cooley and their corporate practice who've done, and some of their white collar work has been fantastic. Just a number of folks who have just done a really good job. And so the things I talked about would love to see. Those are ways in which my life would be a lot easier. But when it comes down to core lawyer skills, there is a lot of really good work and good value going on out there. Josh, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.